Would you open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, find verse 12 in your copy of God's Word. I cannot tell you how many times I have literally had in the cart with my finger hovering over the mouse to click by one of those uh, ancestral DNA kits, you know, Ancestry.com, 23andMe.com. I've wanted to do it. To this point, I have not clicked by. It's not because I'm conspiratorial or anything like that. I mean, frankly, I, I know now that if I'm talking about bug spray and I have my phone in my hand, 10 minutes later, every ad on my phone is going to be for bug spray. If that's happening, I'm going to guess whoever they are already have my DNA. So that's not the reason that I haven't yet made that purchase. Um, although, you know, if my family for my birthday wants to purchase that for me, it would be great. The reason that I have not yet made the purchase is, quite frankly, I, uh, I don't care enough to spend 75 or 100 bucks to do it. I mean, I, I just think, ah, I don't know that I, I want to do it. But isn't it true that our ancestry is something that is almost impossible to resist exploration of? You know why, don't you? We think we're fascinating. I mean, the, the, thing, the thing that we believe is the most fascinating thing on earth is the person looking at us in our mirror. So if I could uh, find out more about this fascinating creature through my DNA, then that, that would be exciting, right? Except that there are some DNA kits that you can buy that delve into uh, medical background, perhaps some genetic propensities that might exist in us that we might not have known about, and had we discovered them, we might not be too thrilled to find are there. With that in mind, we're going to use, if you'll permit me, the cotton swab of Romans 5, 12 through 21 today to explore our ancestry, and in doing so, to find some things that we might not be thrilled to find. And we're going to see in this text that our spiritual ancestry is just as real and has an even more profound effect on our lives than the genetic material that is coursing through our veins. And we'll make that discovery by focusing on one ancestor that is common to us all and then also considering one potential ancestor who has the capacity to literally rewrite our spiritual DNA. The ancestor who is common to us all is Adam. And the potential ancestor who could change everything is Jesus. And the outcomes of those two ancestries could not possibly be more different. We will go through these verses today under two headings. Here's the first heading. Adam, that ancestor who is common to us all, brought us sin and death. I want you to look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Now, obviously, Adam's name does not show up in those verses. In fact, it will not show up for a few more verses. But there is no doubt that Adam is the person that Paul has in mind in the verse we just read. And concerning Adam, Paul in this verse makes a series of observations about him and his effect on our lives that we need to dig more deeply into. First, he says, sin entered the world through him which reveals a couple of things. First, it reveals that Paul considered him to be a real historical person. One of the many things, of the many things that we know about Paul, is that he wasn't sloppy with his logic. And so far through the book of Romans, he has labored at length to show that there is this real live thing in the world called sin. And it has had a real live effect on the world and a real live effect on humanity and a real live effect on individuals. So he wouldn't say that this thing that he is classified to be absolutely real and absolutely present entered the world through a mythological figure. It doesn't make logical sense. He is saying that sin entered the world through a real historical person. And then he says that death entered the world through that real historical person, Adam's sin. Paul's going to underscore what he means by death entering the world even more in chapter 6 when at the end of a crescendo he says the wages of sin, the outcome of sin is death, meaning more than just the physical death that we experience ushered into the human experience through Adam, but also the greater spiritual death and separation from God is ushered into the human experience, he's saying here, through the sin of Adam. He then says that this death spread to all men because, because all sinned. So it's not just that Adam sinned. We too, because of Adam, have sinned. Now it's hard really to understand exactly what he means by all of this than to simply say Paul understood that humanity in some way has been caught up into Adam's sin. The debate that theologians want to have here is whether we are born guilty or if he, Paul, is saying here that we inevitably become guilty because of our proclivity to sin. Personally, I think he's saying both. I'm convinced that he is saying that we are all conceived in sin, as David said in the Psalms, and that we are all eventually going to sin. Now, there's all kinds of rabbit trails we could trace here about when we become culpable for our sin, when we become worthy of God's judgment because of our sin, but that is for another day. Paul's main point here is that we are all swept up in the sin of our ancestor Adam, and we confirm that connection to him by actually personally, individually sinning. Now, to show the pervasiveness of sin in the human condition as a result of Adam's sin, Paul goes on to say this in verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet... Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type 
of the one to come. And I get that's thick and that's complex. There's a lot going on there. But it helps to understand that Paul has been comparing throughout the book of Romans the status of people before God who didn't have access to the laws and the rituals of the Jewish religion with the status before God of those who did have. In other words, he's compared the experience of Jews who knew what God had commanded and had the ability to do it and Gentiles who didn't know what God commanded and therefore were sinning, as it were, in ignorance. And he reaches a resounding conclusion. That conclusion is everybody sinned. Everybody has sinned before God, whether they knew the explicit law or whether they didn't know the explicit law. Whether they had transgressed, meaning I know what God wants me to do and I'm not going to do it, or whether they just generally sinned, meaning that they violated their moral code or just went against in their life the things that God had decreed were sinful. And to prove that sin existed before there were ever standards to follow like the law, he makes a simple observation. People died between the time of Adam and between the time of Moses. Moses being the one that God chose to bring in the laws and the rituals of the Jewish religion. So when he says sin cannot be counted where there is no law, he's trying to communicate that even in the absence of an explicit command from God recorded in Scripture, sin was still present because, as Paul has already pointed out, in Romans, mankind rejected what God had imprinted of himself on the creation and on the human heart. So even when we didn't know explicitly what God's law was, we were sinning, and the evidence of that is death. And he says, all of that entered into the human experience through Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now, let's deal with that. A basic principle for reading the Old Testament as a modern follower of Jesus is to understand that frequently, but not always, people, events, and institutions in the Old Testament correspond to or foreshadow other people, events, or institutions that come later. We're not permitted to dream up those connections. I mean, it can very much feel like legitimate deep Bible study, but it's just a bunch of nonsense. For instance, I've got a book in my library across the street where a man talking about the experience of the flood in the book of Genesis said, hey, look, the wood of the ark which preserved humanity was made out of gopher wood. Well, I've heard tell that crosses were made out of gopher wood, so this prefigures the cross. It doesn't. It doesn't. It was good shipbuilding material. End of discussion. I mean, that's it. You can't make those connections on your own. So how do we know when we can make those connections? When the New Testament tells us that we can make those connections. And here, we're being told to make the connection between Adam and between Jesus. Adam brought sin and death and was a type of the one to come. How so? 
or is a theological term that explains why Adam's sin resulted in our guilt. And that theological term is federal headship. Federal headship. I know that's a, a big, you know, term for Chiefs game day, but just lock it in there. Federal headship. Adam, the first man, served as the federal head. Think of it like this. As mankind's representative in the first covenant between mankind and God. A covenant of works. What does that mean? Well, it means that, that God made this agreement with Adam that if Adam would obey God, he would, in exchange, experience an Eden that never ended. Had Adam maintained his obedience, his blessedness would have been transferred, would have been handed down throughout humanity. But because of his disobedience to God, his curse has been transferred instead. So theologically, the only consistent way for this curse to be addressed would be for God to enact a new covenant with a new federal head or a new representative for humanity and a new covenant with God. One whose obedience to that covenant would transmit the righteousness to humanity that Adam's disobedience would never be able to provide. But this new representative for humanity would also need to do more than just bequeath righteousness to guilty creatures like us. He must also deal with the issue of their guilt before God, of dealing with the stain of Adam's sin, which brings us to the potential ancestor who can rewrite sin-corrupted spiritual DNA. That's, that ancestor, that potential ancestor, is, of course, Jesus. And so turning his focus from what we get from Adam to getting uh, to what we get from Jesus, Paul shows us that Jesus brings grace and life. We inherit guilt and sin and death from Adam. But Jesus gives us the capacity to inherit grace and life. And so to show that, Paul's going to highlight some differences between what we get from Adam and what we get from Jesus. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The first difference Paul highlights here is that Mankind deserves the, the guilt before God and the death before God because of Adam's sin. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair at all. Okay, let's just pretend for a second. Let's just pretend for a second that it was all just on Adam, okay? And you, you could get righteously indignant because Adam was a moron. But let me ask you something. Have you sinned? End of discussion. All right, we inherit guilt, but we're also guilty because we sin. This is what Paul is saying here. He is saying that we're all guilty. We all deserve the separation because we all personally, consciously sin. But he says we do not deserve what we inherit from Jesus. How do I know that? Because he calls it a gift. 
which is not the last time that he will refer to salvation as a gift in the book of Romans. So the first difference between what we inherit from Adam and what we inherit from Jesus is that we don't deserve what we inherit from Jesus. Then he highlights the second difference, verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. I'm just above plant life when it comes to my ability to be able to do math. But it helps me to think of verse 16 like an equation. Here's, here's how I think of what verse 16 is saying. One sin equaled many sins. But many sins are less than the one gift. I want you to stop and think with me about this for a second. I want you to think about the carnage that unfolds for you when you turn on the news or when you read the paper. I want you to think about that. That is ultimately the result of the human experience, which is the result of Adam's guilt and Adam's sin. All of that disgusting, heart-rending, rage-inducing, whatever stuff that you see on the news is the result of Adam's guilt. Jesus' gift is greater than all of that. That's how amazing the gift of salvation is. Adam made us all guilty. Jesus can make us all righteous. And to underscore the triumph of God's grace through Christ over mankind's curse from Adam, Paul says this in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than Adam in every way. And if Adam can have that kind of effect on us through his sin, how much more will we benefit from the act of the righteous man, the perfect man, Jesus Christ? If you're a note taker and feel comfortable writing in your Bible, just dot, greatest grace is greater than all our sins outside of verse 17. Because that's what he's saying to us. He's saying as devastating as Adam's sin was, the transformation made possible through Jesus Christ is greater. Adam gives sin and death, but Jesus gives grace and life. Now, let's look at how he kind of wraps things up beginning in verse 18. Therefore, that's how you know he's wrapping stuff up. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Simple math once again. One man plus one sin equals many sins. One man plus one righteous act, many made righteous. He says the same thing a bit differently in the last two verses But he's leaning into something I want to point out here that not as Derek the preacher, but as just Derek the follower of Jesus reading God's word made a a profound impact on me. Look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass 
Now, trespass, it's important to know, is a different word than sin in Paul's language. Trespass means I know the right thing to do. Ah, eh, not going to do it. It's a trespass. That's what a trespass is. The law increased that because it showed us, it showed us what God desired and the, the guilt to the sinner in us handed down from Adam doesn't want to do what God wants. So the law increased the trespass. It told us explicitly how sin or why sin is sin. But he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Hmm, what does that mean? Well, let's keep reading. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In broad terms, his point is that the grace offered through Christ is sufficient for even the knowing and willful sin committed when we break God's law, break what God's word commands, and decide to sin anyway. But here's what stands out to me about that. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 15, Moses said there was no sacrifice available to a person who had willfully and high-handedly sinned. In other words, there was no way in the Jewish faith for a person to be forgiven if they consciously chose to defy God without any sense of guilt and just frankly didn't care. Now, there's a subtle difference here, but it's very important. He is not saying that there is no ability to be sin or to be forgiven if we look at what God commands in the Old Testament framework. If the Old Testament person looked at what God had commanded and said, I really want to do that, but then they just broke down and they sinned anyway. He's not speaking there saying that can't be forgiven. What he's speaking to is what I call spiritually uh, toddler syndrome. Don't step there. That's what he's speaking to. He's saying when we know the right thing to do, when we know what God wants us to do, this is what... What Moses was saying in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel knew the right thing to do, and it's not that they were fighting against not doing it, they just didn't care. I don't care. And they did it anyway. Moses said, there's no provision for your forgiveness. Now I want you to just let that set heavy in you for a minute. Because without us having a therapy session here, I bet you I'm not looking at anybody in this room who hadn't at some point in their life said, yeah, I know what God says, but I don't care. I mean, I've done it. And if it all stopped at Malachi, there's no provision for that. If it all depended on Adam, there's no provision for that. But Paul here is saying, that when God's command were made explicit in the Old Testament and willful sin increased, the kind of sin where people knew the right thing to do and just said, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway, that the, the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for even that. Jesus provides a way for reconciliation with God in a way that trumps even what the Old Testament said, for the person who has committed premeditated sin without blushing, Paul is saying the, the gift of God 
through our potential ancestor, Jesus Christ, can forgive all of that and rewrite who we are. Rewrite completely who we are. And so God offers all of us, all of us, regardless of what we drug into this room today, the chance to rewrite our ancestry. All of us, every single one of us, have been swept up in Adam's sin. Theologians can debate the specifics of what that means, but Paul makes clear that the outcome is physical death, which is a symbol of a greater death, spiritual death. And he says it's true for every man, for every woman, for every boy, for every girl in this room. But what is also true for every man, every woman, every boy and girl in this room is that one man's righteous act on our behalf can change everything and it doesn't matter what's there. It doesn't matter what's there. We live in a world that doesn't want you to be free. And by that I mean that we constantly have banged into our head that we're the sum total of our life's experiences. And so if you grew up in that kind of home or you had that kind of relationship or if you're just kind of, you know, cranky, nothing of that can ever change. That's just who you are. You're the sum total of your experiences. And the reason that is true, in a sense, is because from Adam you inherited guilt. Adam stood before God as our representative and blew it. And it all ran downhill into our lives. But there's a new representative for humanity before God, and he literally nailed it. And because he did, everything about you, everything that you're ashamed of, everything that you have been told to accept as unfixable in your life can be rewritten because of the gift of Jesus Christ. We can inherit from him the grace and the life that can set us free.